Welcome to the Shadron Berean Church Podcast, where you'll find some of the latest teachings from Shadron Berean Church in Shadron, Nebraska. We are a loving community of believers growing in God's grace in Christ together. The heartbeat of our church is to have deep roots in the Word of God and to bear fruit by passionately applying it to our lives by His power for His glory. And we thank you for joining us. As a farm kid, raised on a mostly dry land wheat farm, Uh, we had a few pivots, but it was mostly dry land wheat. There was a couple of uh, words or plants that just make me cringe, even to this day. Two of them. One is Canadian thistle. Someone's a farming over here, you hear that? The other is rye, rye, and that can be a good thing if you're actually a rancher and you want to plant some rye that your cows are going to eat, but I couldn't stand it when my neighbor planted rye, because rye is a lot like wheat, but if they find it in your grain at the do- at the at the elevator, they dock you for it, and uh, rye, how many of you know what rye is? Okay. You see it in that first picture. You see how it's a little bit taller than the wheat right there? Yeah, that's it. It's similar to wheat. It looks a lot like wheat. It grows with the wheat at the same time, but it isn't really until the wheat is getting ready to head out and it's in that stage that you start to really notice the rye because it grows about a foot, a foot or so taller than the wheat. And uh, my experience growing up as a kid on the farm was basically my mom rounding us up and I was us kids going out into the wheat fields and just pulling rye, pulling pockets of rye. And when I got older, if there was a lot of wheat in the field, that meant I was getting the weed wiper out. It was this 30-foot contraption with sponges on it that had Roundup-filled sponges, and I'd drag it through the through the wheat fields on a, behind a four-wheeler. And you basically just basically touch the tops of the rye, the heads of rye with Roundup, and you keep the wheat safe, but you kill the rye. Anyway, I've spent way too much time <clears throat> messing with that stuff. Uh, we didn't use clear field wheat where you can just spray it and keep your fields clean. Uh, so we'd have to go out and put a lot of effort into taking care of that that weed, I call it. But as, as any crop grows, like wheat, corn, sugar beets, whatever, uh, based on the conditions that year during the growing season, there's going to be different challenges that have to be addressed, just like that rye. Okay, if you're going to bring in a, a fruitful harvest, you might have to uh, go to an agronomist, and, and they'll give you advice, or they'll give you supplies to meet whatever that crop needs. It might have insects, you might need fungicide, insecticide, fertilizer, something like that. And there was a place I used to go to, <clears throat> ironically enough, in Berea, Nebraska. I don't know why it's Berea, but it was the the place closest to our farm was a place called Simplot. And what they gave you was grower solutions. Oh, your crop has this problem. Here's your grower solution. That's what they're there for. Their tagline was grower solutions. And that's really what our next passage in Acts chapter 6 reminds me of. We're making our way through the book of Acts, and the author Luke is recording for us the history of the early, early church. And uh, the church is a growing rapidly 
Uh, 3,000 were added, 5,000 were added, many more were added. At, at about this point in the book of Acts, we're somewhere around 10 to 20,000 people, uh, most Bible uh, historians, scholars believe. 10 to 20,000 people, you might call that a mega church, right? Uh, but as a church grows, as any church grows, just like a crop grows, so do the challenges that come with it. There's inevitable challenges, what we might cr- call Growing pains. Growing pains. Church growth is probably the hardest thing for any church leadership to manage. And uh, so far we've seen them uh, have to deal with hypocrisy in the early, early church. Uh, We've seen them deal with persecution. And today Luke's going to give us another glimpse within the, the life of the church as we witness a potential division that is cropping up, you could say. Uh, a potential division occurs, and there's a necessary um, structural reorganizing that takes place to keep the church on track and for the disciples to continue to be made. Uh, this is one of those passages I've been looking forward to ever since we started Acts, and uh, it's always stood out to me for some reason. This is the first time that Luke will use the word disciple in the book of Acts. It's the first of 28 times, and we're going to see some grower solutions for how a church can continue to grow and make disciples uh, through the growing pains. Okay, They're going to, We're going to turn this problem in the church into a huge blessing, and the church is going to go on to make more disciples. Let's look at verse 1. Uh, now at this time, while the disciples were growing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. Let's stop there. We're seeing first here in our outline the challenging situation in the growing church. So far, neither hypocrisy nor persecution uh, could stop the church. We, we learned that last time we were in Acts. But now there's a wedge Okay, some, some new situation, a wedge developing on the inside that has the potential to cause a, a rift or a split if it's not dealt with. And we're starting to see, I think, that consistent challenges and difficulties are going to be the church's lot in this world. Uh, Luke has given us some beautiful pictures of the early church and how they were just, you know, one heart, one mind, had this incredible koinonia fellowship. But it kind of seems like reality setting in, isn't it? Problem after problem after problem. That's the church's lot in this world. Uh, that's our cup. And we, we better get used to it. Satan, by the way, he knows that I think his favorite weapon is right there. I think he loves the wedge. And he knows that a house that's divided against itself cannot stand. So I think Satan is always working within churches trying to divide them, working tirelessly at it, actually. Uh, Trying to divide churches over things that really don't matter. But uh, you had two main groups in the predominantly Jewish church at this time, in this early church. Uh, You had the native Jews who spoke Hebrew, they, they read Hebrew scriptures, I mean, they, they kept the Hebrew cultural customs, the dress, that sort of thing. And then you had the Hellenistic Jews. And that word Hellenistic just means Grecian. It refers to Grecian influence, Hellenism. But uh, Hellenistic Jews were 
just as Jewish by birth. Get that. They're just as Jewish by birth and bloodline, but they weren't as customarily rigid as, uh, say, the Pharisees, something like that. Because, you see, they'd adapted to some of their Gentile neighbors' ways. Remember, Jews had been dispersed all over the world at this time, from Rome to Iraq to North Africa. I mean... Uh, we've seen this, how there was people in Acts chapter 2, Jews who came from all over the world to regather in Jerusalem. Okay, And uh, just like today, there's Jewish communities all around the world. Uh, but they're, they're still very Jewish, right? Or at least they try to be, even though they don't have their temple present with them. And uh, to, to the Jews, Jerusalem is always their home home, no matter where they make their home. They're always looking towards home. And uh, that's kind of the way it was back then, too. They were still very Jewish, but because they were not living in Jerusalem, they'd, they'd, they'd socialized with the Gentiles and kind of adapted and assimilated a little bit, unlike the Pharisees. Uh, Greeks, Greek also had become uh, the primary language, Greek, uh, the Hellenism, Grecianism, whatever you want to call it. It just pretty much dominated the world through Alexander the Great. And... Uh, so they, they spoke Greek as their primary language. Uh, there was Greek synagogues. We'll look at one next time in the book of Acts. They used the Septuagint for their scriptures, and the Septuagint was the uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures. Uh, it's abbreviated LXX. Some of you might have seen LXX in some of your commentaries. Uh, that's just a reference to the Septuagint. It was given that. LXX, Roman numeral, uh, because it, which means 70, because it was translated by about 70 um, Jewish translators uh, about uh, 250 B.C., well, the 2nd and 3rd centuries B.C. It was really popular uh, since Greek was the dominant language at the time, and even our New Testament, believe it or not, quotes the, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. But uh, you can see here how how there's a potential cultural fracture that could occur between the more conservative Jews who are, you know, strict, you know, the, the Pharisees, Hebrew, everything, versus the, the Greek-influenced uh, Hellenistic Jews at this point. Uh, the, the common spiritual bond that they had, they had in Christ had uh, welded them together, you could say, but Still, the human friction, I think, seemed inevitable. And I'm sure Satan was there working in the church saying, let's just start a complaint somewhere. Uh, let's just murmur for a while. And then, after that, we'll start our own little Hellenistic church over here on this side of town. Right? The native Hebrews over here, we'll use the Septuagint over here in this church. This will be the Septuagint church. Someone said, our murmuring is the devil's music. Murmuring, you know, whispering. Not really getting anything done about the problem, just kind of stirring the pot a little bit, right? And it's hard to tell if these Hellenists were actually a, really a bunch of rabble-rousers and had a spirit of entitlement, or if there was like a, uh, you know, a holier-than-thou attitude on part of the native Hebrews. You know, we're better than you because we're, we're using the Hebrew scriptures, that sort of thing. Uh, I'm fairly confident there was a little bit of both going on. But 
I think we should learn from it. Friction is going to be inevitable anywhere people are coming together with various backgrounds and beliefs and culture. And uh, as God's people, we need to learn uh, to handle friction well because the church is supposed to be made up of all nations, right? That's kind of the goal, to make disciples of all nations. Well, what happens when more than one culture gets together? Right? There's going to be friction. I, I saw that when I was in South America. Uh, friction in my own heart. Like, what are they doing? Like, don't they understand how we do it in America or North America? You know, these South Americans. Then there was things they did right, and I was like, man, we should learn from them at times. So anyway, if there's, there's an issue or a problem in the church that needs addressed, uh, we need to address it. Like those who are citizens and representatives of the kingdom of God, of the kingdom of heaven. Remember, Paul reproved the Corinthians for taking their disputes before ungodly, secular human courts. The Corinthians were having problems, and they were kind of suing each other and biting each other, and they were actually taking their concerns, disputes before Gentile courts. And uh, Paul says to them, don't you know that we're going to judge the world someday? Don't you know that we're going we're gonna to judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So Paul's looking forward to the future, their future position, their future role, probably some millennial kingdom positions and, and judgment day. And, and he's saying, look, don't you understand who you are? Like you're representatives of God's kingdom. You can't handle your own disputes. You know, don't, don't you guys know what Christ did for you and you can experience grace? and You've experienced grace and mercy and forgiveness. Can't you do that with one another? He says, why not rather be wronged and just let it happen? You know, so we should operate now in light of our future. I think our future positions and roles and, and we should be able to handle concerns without the murmuring and grumbling type of complaining, if you know what I mean. Uh, this could have been a genuine complaint, but... Still, some of your translations translated it murmuring, didn't they? And that's what got Old Testament Israel in trouble. Quail, right? Quail, like knee-deep quail, and venomous serpents ring a bell. Remember that? They were murmuring and complaining and whining, and they just want to go back to Egypt where they had good food, and they didn't have to eat this man all the time, and I'm tired. You know, man, judgment fell on them because that's all they did in the wilderness. And uh, really, it was a lack of faith in God's provision. But they became an example for us in the New Testament. And it's kind of funny, if you think about it, that uh, here in Acts, it's the, the, the murmuring and the complaining is about food. <laughs> and you look back to, to the book of Numbers, and what are they complaining about? Food. Isn't that funny? So next time you go out and they get your order wrong, Careful how you respond. Um, I'll just say that. Uh, Paul said, do all things, all things without grumbling or disputing. And he says, when you do that, you're like lights in a dark and crooked world. Lights in the world. So we want to come to any sort of situation, wherever there's a genuine complaint, a problem. We want to come to it with wisdom. We want to come to it with patience and discretion. Is there a problem, a dispute? So what? Right? Let's, let's not get surprised about it. Let's not act like it's the end of the world. Let's not be surprised. Let's discuss it. Let's solve it like children of God. 
and let's move on, right? Let's turn this thing into a blessing somehow. Let's, let's not point fingers and murmur because those who do that are typically those who won't lift a finger except to point the blame. Uh, it's, just, it's just always been that way. Those who complain the most typically do the least. Uh, they, they volunteer the least. But uh, anyway, I keep re- reinforcing this in Acts. We've just got to remember what's important. Uh, the churches that are going to continue to grow, those who are, are those churches who, who understand what matters and what really doesn't at the end of the day. A growing church focuses on their common bond in Christ, the mission, the vision, those sorts of things. They focus on what they have in common, like being baptized by the same spirit into the same body of Christ. Yes, many, much diversity, right? But the same spirit. We're all one in Christ, that sort of thing. And that's one of the neatest elements I find about the church is that no matter what someone looks like, no matter where they're from, no matter what they do, we all have a deep spiritual union in Christ. When I was in South America, that was probably the neatest thing. Uh, We would have mission conferences and uh, large mission conferences, and there would be people from Canada, all the way from between Canada to Argentina there. Every country in between, I mean the United States, Mexico, Panama, Costa Rica, uh, Colombia, Peru, all of these different countries, and then people from Europe, uh, Austria, Germany, Switzerland, Africa, Turkey, you got all these people in one spot, and they're all worshiping the same Savior. It's just, it's awesome, and it kind of gives you, it kind of gave me a glimpse of, I think, Revelation 21, I think it's 26, where the New Jerusalem is a place where all the nations represent. Have you ever read that? All the nations enter into it, and they bring their glory and honor into it. So every nation has glory and honor, and all of the nations glorify God. It's a beautiful thing. And, you know, that, that kind of unity along with the differences actually becomes a very powerful testimony to the world. Very powerful testimony. Another vital truth that is relevant to our context is something I've mentioned a lot over the past year or so, and it's all uh, because of all the talk about racism, right? Uh, started at the beginning of last year. Well, <clears throat> a lot of that racism stuff would be solved if, if we just understood everyone was made in the image of God. I've talked about this a lot and for a good reason. I mean, if we just get the evolution out of the schools and start teaching how people are made in the image of God, that God created them that way, we wouldn't have so much problems with it. Uh, it's like they're, they're starting the fire out there and then they're trying to, to, to put it out at the same time. It just doesn't make any sense. They start the fire and they get mad at the fires there. But we're all made in the image of God. Every person is inherently valuable no matter what stage of life they're in. Okay? They could be in the womb. They could be in widowhood. They could be in a wheelchair. It doesn't matter. They're made in the image of God and they're valuable. Amen? Many ancient cultures, though, they valued people based on the extent of their value to the community. How, what kind of, how much they were useful, I guess, to the community. So you can imagine that uh, it's very performance-based, right? And, and we're not like that in the church, are we? We're not performance-based. 
We shouldn't be. So, because, I mean, God doesn't save us based on our performance, does he? No, it's all by grace, through faith. That means it's free. It's by trusting in him, what he's done, not what we do. So we want to be grace-based. But uh, as you can imagine, <clears throat> in a performance-based culture like this, many older women and widows uh, who couldn't bear children anymore or do hard labor and had no family would live in a very bleak existence. And they needed community care because there's, you know, they didn't have social security. They didn't have uh, disability, things like this. First um, Timothy 5 actually gives instruction for the church on how to care for widows because many of them were ending up in the, in the streets. And uh, it was a sad situation. But one of the differences that's supposed to make, that was supposed to make Israel stand out and should make us stand out uh, is our care for widows and orphans and the babies and the, and the poor. You think about it. I mean, today, a community, a nation, a church, uh, the character and credibility of, of someone or something, some organization is often developed by how it does what? How it treats the widow, the orphan, the poor, the babies, the unborn. And so it's interesting for us to ask, how does the church respond to widows being overlooked in the book of Acts. Let's look at uh, verses 2 through 6. The 12, 12 apostles, right, summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Uh, therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to the ministry of of the word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas. I don't know if I'm saying these names right. His name's right. Nicholas, there's one familiar. Uh, Nicholas, and a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, uh, they laid their hands on them. And so we see, secondly, the solution to the situation. First we saw the issue, now we see the solution. Uh, the twelve come up with a plan that everyone approves of. The congregation on, on both sides, Hellenistic and native Hebrew, uh, choose the men who are going to serve in this position. And the apostles themselves understand their primary calling before God is to lay a foundation for the church through their preaching and their teaching and that others, uh, God has equipped others to meet this need. And uh, the apostles, by the way, they're not, don't, don't read this and think that the apostles are just you know, too good to serve tables or something like that. It just, it wasn't desirable for them because God had gifted them in a unique way and, and they had a unique role in the church. Uh, people needed spiritual food, right? More than, more than the, the physical food. So, uh, they didn't uh, need to sit at a, a table all day. Actually, I think that's what it meant by serve tables. It's not actually handing out plates necessarily, but actually sitting at the tables and organizing the, the meals that were going to take place and what goes where. But uh, anyway, there's, there's no lesser thans in this passage. There's no, no more thans. You know, we're better than you because we, we have different gifts or something like that. Uh, and we can tell because the qualifications for this first deacon-like task is high. And uh, as, as the New Testament 
develops, instructions for church leadership, that's one of the things you notice uh, is, is the qualifications. The qualifications for, for elders. We know what elders are, right? The, the shepherds, overseers, uh, pastors. They exercise uh, spiritual oversight in the congregation. That's their main concern. Then you've got uh, deacons, qualifications for deacons, which are about the same as elders, except that uh, elders are apt to teach. They're able to teach. But uh, deacons, uh, that the word comes from diakonos. It's in here. It's called servant. It means servant. Uh, but they almost have identical, identical qualifications, except, again, the elder shepherds have to be able to, to teach and spiritual, exercise spiritual oversight. Deacons seem to serve in more practical ways, and I've given you some references in your notes. Uh, if you want more uh, information on, on that, just look at uh, 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. But uh, some, some of the Bible students uh, consider these men here to be the first deacons, but uh, that might be stretching it a little bit. But as we'll see, there's at least two of these men who become great preachers and teachers too, Stephen uh, and Philip. But uh, I think it would have been tempting, don't you, for the, the, the apostles just to, to step in and handle this situation personally and say, we've, we've got this. Can you imagine them doing that and there's just thousands of other people in the church that could do it just fine probably? Right? There's, uh, see, they, they could have just micromanaged everything, but they're wiser than that. And so they stay focused on their role in the mission and they properly delegate the task. Uh, D.L. Moody said, it's better to hire 10 men to do the work than to do the work of 10 men. So uh, delegation is important. But they, they lay hands on them and that signifies... And we, we see this now and then, right? Uh, laying hands on someone in the church and praying over them. That's like uh, signifying a passing of intangible authority, right? When you're passing on authority to someone, you can't see it. And that's why we lay our hands on them. It signifies that. So they're just uh, giving them the authority for this task, and they're placing their hands on them in front of the whole congregation so that everyone knows these are the guys. These are the guys you go to for this. Um, but let's summarize three grower solutions here. For a growing church. Number one, a growing church prioritizes the teaching of the Word of God. I think we see that here, don't we? See, so we've got to prioritize the teaching of the Word of God. Christian community is built on Scripture, or at least it should be. Uh, uh, we, we build our, our church on the instruction given to us in the Word of God. We want to do things God's way. That's why the apostles and elders... Uh, the, what we might call the pastor shepherds, they've got to give themselves to teaching the Word. That's their main responsibility. And uh, making disciples is impossible without prioritizing God's Word. We want to grow in Christ by studying the Word. That's what First Peter said, like newborn babies. Uh, long for the pure milk of the Word, so that by it you may grow in respect to your salvation. Any church that starts to marginalize the Word of God uh, will cease to make disciples, and they'll start to turn to, what, entertainment? To keep people coming, to keep people, I don't know, occupied. If, if we marginalize the Word of God and the teaching of the Word of God, we're just coming for entertainment, aren't we? It's a country club, a social gathering. We want to come to grow and to grow spiritually. We want to know what the Word of God says so we can apply it to our lives. 
We want deep roots in the Word of God. We want to bear the fruit of it. So, uh, secondly, uh, a growing church is going to prioritize prayer. Prioritizing prayer. Prayer comes up a lot in the book of Acts, and for good reason. A church needs to prioritize prayer because it's through prayer we receive God's strength and wisdom and insight and guidance to, to lead the church and to be the church. I have no doubt that when this complaint arose, the apostles started praying. God gave them guidance. Uh, thirdly, a growing church delegates tasks to qualified people within the body. This passage shows us, I think, there's no such thing as a menial task. I mean, people would look at serving tables as something menial, right? Oh, that's, you know, I can probably, I can probably do that one. You know, that's the only thing I can do. You're going to learn that if that doesn't happen, the church ain't moving forward. The church is going to split, but because people actually step in and they serve the Lord in this capacity, in this menial task, the church continues to increase and disciples are multiplied. So everything we do, guys, within the church and without our, our witness outside the church, kind of a general calling for each of us to be the church outside of this place, in our workplace and in our schools, that's important. But it's also important everything we do in here. I think everybody's, every single one of us has a specific call within the church. Right? We all serve outside in our witness, but we all have a part, I think, inside the church as well, a way that God wants us to serve in the body. So uh, keep that in mind. <clears throat> anyway, these, these men are chosen. These men chosen are exemplary men, I think, that, that both sides had to approve of, and we can see their qual qualifications here. Uh, number one, they had to be above reproach. Number two, they had to be full of the Spirit. Number three, they had to be wise. Above reproach means they had to have just a, a reputation for being uh, blameless. They had to have long-term consistency, you could say, in their spiritual walk. Uh, they're walking with Christ consistently. You could talk to their co-workers. Kind of, these are the kind of guys you could talk to their co-workers, and their co-workers would say, that person knows Jesus, they love Jesus, even if I don't like it. You know? <laughs> Uh, you could get on their social media, maybe their, their Facebook, their Instagram, their Snapchat, uh, and you could look over the past year of all their posts over the past year, and you could, you could say, yeah, that, that person walks with the Lord. I mean, isn't that how employers employ people today? The first thing, they get, a, they get an application. What's the first thing they do? They look them up on Facebook or whatever. They see what kind of person they are. The person, uh, people that are appointed in the church, especially leadership, is you want them to be qualified. You want them to be above reproach. It also helps if when you get on their social media, uh, they post memes, I think. I think uh, leadership should have humor and uh, laughter qualifications, too. That's not in the Bible, but uh, that's just a joke. It's a plus, I think, if leadership can have some humor and laughter to it, right? Uh, secondly, they got to be full of the Spirit. There's someone who walks by the Spirit. That's what that's saying. Full of the Spirit. They're walking with the Lord. They got love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self control, all the good fruit of the Spirit in their life. That's important because if they're not in the Spirit, they're going to be walking in the what? You're only in, there's only one of two options you're going to be walking in. You're either walking in the Spirit or at any moment you're walking in the the flesh, the sin nature. What's the sin nature characterized by in Galatians 5? Uh, immorality, sensuality, 
dissension, basically divisions. They're going to be divisive people. They're going to have a short fuse. They're going to be angry all the time. Uh, They're going to be selfishly ambitious. They're going to do what they do for them and not for the Lord. So we want to look for men who are full of the Spirit. We need more more men and women like that in the church. Uh, Thirdly, they got to be wise. And I think by that, we can just summarize wisdom by saying they're, they're skillful at life because they know God's Word and they're applying God's Word. And so that, that way when they come to a, I don't know, a, a dispute or a problem, they can, they can look to God's Word and apply it. And uh, that's apply, applying it according to reality, the way God wants us to operate. But uh, these qualifications, I think, don't just describe a convert. You know what I mean? Not just a convert. We don't look to just, uh, make converts. We don't just want converts in the church. We want disciples, people who are serious about following Jesus. And uh, <clears throat> these are qualifications that are necessary for, for this sensitive situation that's going on in the church. It's got to be a person that both sides would look at and approve of. You know, you can, you, they couldn't have gotten on this person's social media feed and, and seen like, well, I'm pro-Hellenism, <laughs> or I'm pro-whatever this. I mean, this is someone that both sides have to look at and be like, that's a person that, that we can trust. That's a person walking in the Spirit. Uh, the question we should ask is, do these qualifications describe me? Do they describe you? Because I think they should describe all of us as Jesus' followers. Um, this text, though, this is a, this verses 2 through 6 here are, are really important, especially 5 and 6 seem to really bridge. They make a bridge. It's a bridge text between uh, what's going on here and what is going to happen down the road in the book of Acts. Because out of these seven men... Uh, Stephen and Philip are going to become major players in the next couple of chapters. So our next chapter, uh, Stephen preaches uh, a lengthy sermon, uh, the longest sermon in the book of Acts. And uh, anyway, Philip, he's going to become a major player in the next couple of chapters as well. I think it's Acts chapter 8. Stephen becomes the first martyr. Philip is an evangelist. Nicholas... Uh, this guy, he's from, he's a proselyte from Antioch, which means what? He's a Gentile. And about Acts 11, the Gentiles start to come into the church. Uh, remember Cornelius with Peter. And uh, Antioch, Antioch's even mentioned. That's not an accident because Antioch becomes a missionary hub for the apostles. Uh, I think it's Acts chapter 13. Paul and Barnabas are sent out from Antioch. Antioch is a key place located just north of Jerusalem and uh, kind of up there in the, the armpit where Turkey and Israel, that sort of area meets right there, Syria. But uh, <clears throat> so you can see this is a bridge text. It leads us into what is coming. But while we're here, let's just let's think about local church structure for a bit. I'm not talking about universal church structure. A lot of people look at the universal church as an organism and uh you know, the, the local church, visible church as an organization. But I want to think of the local church a little bit with you. Just think about it. Uh, we're getting into ecclesiology here a bit. Some folks think the church should just be this oh, loosey-goosey, I don't know, type of uh, organism, they call it. The church is an organism. 
where everything, we should just kind of, you know, just wing everything that we do here. Let's just gather informally and we'll just wing it, right? Somebody pick a song here, somebody pick a song there, somebody get up and preach, somebody else get up. You know, and so there's no organization really. We just kind of wing it. And the, the argument out there is the argument or the, the comments often made that uh, churches are just so organized that, that we're, we choke out the spirit. The spirit can't work. And there may be some legitimacy to that in some cases. But the New Testament also teaches that a church is to be organized. Organized. It has appointed leadership. It has qualifications for that leadership. Uh, for membership, obviously, you gotta, you have to believe. Uh, there's uh, disciplinary action, instruction for, for how, to, how to discipline in the church when that sort of action is necessary. It talks about holding services uh, properly and in order, having orderly services. Actually, Corinth wasn't doing that. It was all kind of spontaneous, and, and that's kind of the reason why they were having so many problems. It's because there was an order in the church, and God is not a God of chaos, but a God of order. That's what Paul told the Corinthians. Uh, I like to think of the church as an organized organism. And maybe a present tense form is even better than that. An organizing, continually organizing organism. We want to be organized, but we don't want to be so set in our ways like some churches are that we can't, I don't know, break tradition a little bit, right? Break up the order of the service. We, we, we can't make organizational adjustments at all because we're just so set in our ways. And, you know, actually in some churches it's even harder to make an uh, a structural organizational change, say, you know, concerning the elders or deacons or something like that, it's harder to do that than it is to make change a doctrinal position in some churches. Uh, each church has been and is being composed differently by God. Not, not all churches are the same, right? We're made up of different parts and we're all necessary, but we're being composed by God and it wouldn't be wise if we understand that, to set some sort of unbreakable, unbending form of organization, like saying we, we got to have seven elders and we have to have seven deacons and these positions have to be filled. Well, if these positions have to be filled, then what are we going to do? We're going to end up appointing people just to appoint them, not because they actually qualify. You see where I'm going with that? Okay, so we're an organizing organism. We don't just want to be or we don't want to organize just to be organized because this is the way we've always done it we organize ourselves to bring about spiritual flourishing if a church isn't organized it's not going to flourish uh, just this last week i attended a large uh, multi-service church down in, in lincoln nebraska as a uh, what we might call a mega church. And whenever I go to a larger church like that, I'm just, I'm always impressed by the amount of people that are required just to even make a church service happen. I mean, here, we've, even in a church our size, we've got to have like 20 some people just to make a church service happen. And uh, I can't imagine how many people are required in some of these large churches. That just made me think of Acts. Thousands of people. I mean, it would require a lot of continual organization and restructuring to meet the needs of that kind of church, just like you're seeing in Acts. Uh, new needs and opportunities require fresh structure. Uh, the larger the church, the more 
leaders you need. So you need more qualified people. And uh, if you've been with our church over the past few years, you've, you've tasted that a little bit. Uh, we've got several folks gone for Thanksgiving, but that was a pretty good crowd. Like, we, we've, we've grown quite a bit over the past few years. Uh, there's a lot more faces and smiling faces in the pews, and we love that, right? We love to see that growth. And just I love all the kids here, too. Just have more kids all the time. And so it's a lot of fun, but it's also a lot of work. It is a lot of work. We've had, you know, we got to find more Sunday school teachers because we have more Sunday school classes and more for this, more for that. And, you know, all these adjustments can, can be tough, but they're necessary and they're exciting. And, uh, man, it'd be even more wonderful to see more people get involved, right? That's what's required, though. You've got to make adjustments to make disciples in a growing church. So uh, the church that actually refuses to be flexible and just wants to maintain some sort of status quo is a church that's soon going to suffer steady decline. Uh, so we've got to be okay with adjustments. Uh, you guys know the last six words of a dying church, right? But we've never done that before. Last six words of a dying church. It kind of reminds me of Kodak. Kodak. What do you guys think of when you think of Kodak? Uh, maybe a picture that's about this big and you're shaking it, right? Trying to get the image to clear up. You don't hear much about Kodak anymore. They used to be, they used to be it when it came to photography. They used to be the leaders in photography, but they refused to do what? Embrace the digital age. And now what? You don't hear about them anymore. As a church, just think about that as, as far as a church goes. We've got to be flexible. We've got to be willing to adjust to continue to make disciples. Anyway, let's look at lastly, the last uh, point in our outline here, the, the blessed results of the wise response. Blessed, you might say the, the fruitful results if we're thinking of a crop. Uh, the word of God kept on growing, some translations say. The word of God kept on growing and spreading, and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. So this here is the, the first of six summary statements in the book of Acts by Luke. It's his way of basically wrapping up this entire Jerusalem era Remember, in Acts chapter 1, you're going to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Well, we just wrapped up here the Jerusalem era uh, before God shows us, or before the Word shows us uh, how God's work is going to spread to Samaria and Judea through men like Stephen and Philip. So this era ends on a good note. I'm sure the, the, the apostles... Would have been bumping fists, like, yeah, we, you know, one step down. Let's keep moving on. Uh, the gospel's advancing, and God's word and the number, number of disciples is growing. They're going to reap a harvest of souls, and it's all because they handled this division wisely. Some of the priests you see there, uh, some say there was some, something around like 6,000 priests that were needed in this temple uh, to serve. You know, that thing operated 24 7. And they had like some 6,000 priests involved in this thing, and like they're taking care of needs. And I'm sure some of those priests saw the way that the church handled the situation 
and they were impressed by it, how the church cared for her own. And they came to faith. Some of them were probably opposed to the whole thing at first. But here they are. And that's, that's what can happen, I think, when God's community lives as an attractive light in the world. Tells the world, shows the world the way community was meant to be. Our last, uh, last uh, growing solution, I guess, is a growing church is a disciple-making church. It's a disciple-making church. They keep making disciples. And uh, in summary, I think we could say that this historical account is really about a new structure for community care. A new structure for community care that came to be appointed and developed in the life of the church and how God used it for good. Turn, turned the problem into a a blessing. Uh, it's a picture of the community, the, the church community, God's community, using its own people to meet its own problems and meet its own needs. And I think that is, uh, it's almost, to me, this has been a, this has been a God thing because it's it's really relevant for us here at Shadron Bury. And one of the things I'm excited about that has been prayerfully in the works this year for our church. And I think this passage just affirmed it for us, is what we're going to call our care ministry. Actually, uh, Mary, do you want to go get the sign out of my office? Uh, get, just get the one with the, the lists on it, you know. Uh, Mary's put together some signs for us that are going to help us organize some of the needs in our church. A few people uh, approached me earlier this year with similar ministry ideas on their hearts. And they all involved care somehow, a care ministry, caring for those within our church, caring for those outside of our church. And we began to pray about how God was working and felt led to start a care ministries uh, team for our church. And we'll actually end up putting these care ministry boards up on the wall in the foyer. But what they're going to be there for is to organize the needs in our church. We'll have interest forms where you can fill out potential needs that need to be met. Uh, they can be as spontaneous as, as can be, or you can fill out actually a, a service form where you can actually say, I meant to bring this out earlier. Thanks for doing that. Didn't she do a great job? Um, it's metal, by the way. But uh, anyway, we're going to have interest forms, and then you can. they're also going to have service forms, which are basically a volunteer form that says, you know, um, I'm interested in meeting these types of needs. You know what I mean? Like, uh, say you're not interested in uh, maybe preparing meals for someone who needs meals, right? That 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 couple that's uh, just had a baby or something like that, or that, that widow that just uh, lost her husband, something like that, someone just lost a family member. Oh, we bring them meals, right? Well, maybe you're not interested in that. You're not a meal person, but you like giving people rides. You're one of the persons that says, I can give someone a ride today to church. or So So you get a call for that. Maybe you're interested in neither one of those, and you, you want to be involved in visitation. You want to be a, a prayer person. You want to, uh, I can help mow lawns or scoop snow, something like that. That's what it's going to be there for, and I'm really excited about it. And I just thought it was really great how... We would come to such a passage like this when we're just getting ready to launch uh, this, this kind of ministry. Isn't that great? Uh, to me, it's just like, this is God's affirmation. So uh, I had to share a little bit about it today. I think we'll, we'll talk more about it in January.